Today we travel to Colorado Springs, Colorado and sit down with Betsy Butterick. Betsy is a former collegiate basketball and golf coach who also spent time in the WNBA and has since paired her degree in psychology and background in sport to become a communication specialist, educator, and coach to coaches across the country through her workshops and training. You will learn so much from Betsy as we talk all things communication in this episode, as we look for a better way to effectively reach our respective audiences. Let's settle in and get to know Betsy Butterick. Betsy, we're so glad to have you joining Don and I for this episode of Hanging with the AD. If we're completely transparent, though, Don and I are just a little bit intimidated to have a communication specialist join us. So, uh, you know, we're just just a little bit of uh, intimidation here, but we know we're going to get better today. So thanks for joining us and, and spending time with us. My pleasure. It's great to be on with you all. And, you know, I was thinking, likewise, intimidation. If I was ever hanging with the AD when I was a coach, there was usually a reason for, for most of that as to why that may not be a good thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the trepidation, you know, felt on both sides. It's interesting you say that, though, because, yes, I, communication is my specialty. I'm endlessly fascinated by communication, specifically the way that language connects people or divides people. And that said, I think that... It, you know, oftentimes people say, oh, well, we got to watch what we say. Betsy's here. And it's like, that's my specialty, but I'm also human. I too make mistakes. And what's most helpful for me when I visit with athletic departments and teams is really for people to speak the way they normally would so that I can give them objective feedback. You know, if you're on your best manners or behavior and that's not representative of who you really are most of the time, well, then I can't really help those that you seek to serve. So Everyone just, you know, chill out. I too will make mistakes here. This is a, a safe space for us to do things that we normally do. And I'm really grateful to share time with you all today. That's great. Well, our listeners probably would like for you to give us a lot of tips so we get better and they can uh, hear a different voice, a better voice uh, week to week. But we'll just keep it at general communication strategies. And, and before we do that, let me introduce you a little bit, and then you can tell us a little bit more about who you are. But Betsy Butterick is joining us today. She's a coach, communication specialist, educator, workshop designer, and facilitator. And she has spent time at the collegiate level coaching basketball and golf prior to getting in this communication space. Uh, I'll stop right there, Betsy. I'll, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. We call it the back of the baseball card bio. So just oh, tell yeah, us. Those were great. Yeah, what the back of Betsy Butterick's baseball card would look like. Gosh, and, and I did, I collected cards for a while um, back when I was a kid. So I guess the back of my baseball card would be, you know, I have a degree in psychology and a background in sport, but I'm not a sports psychologist. Full transparency, I have a made up job that I'm very grateful that people continue to pay me to do. And in my journey through college coaching, working at Division One, Two, Three, and a year in the WNBA, what I saw firsthand and experienced was a need for there to be someone who wasn't an immediate member of the staff or tied either financially or you know politically to a coach's position that was really just there to help them improve in ways that they desired to so that then they could offer a better experience to those in their charge. So when I first started down this path, it was really to coach coaches as an executive coach. 
I remember the moment exactly in time where I learned that coaching was something that existed outside of sports. And it was, you know, kind of that gut punch that like, oh, this is the thing I feel most called to do, to be able to coach coaches and give back to the industry athletics that has given so much to me and really shaped the way that I've grown up that evolved to become a communication specialist simply because so many of the issues that I see in sport or within teams or departments are communication issues at the heart. And if we look at high performance through the lens of the buzzword for, you know, most often associated with high performing teams is chemistry. Well, chemistry is formed through connection and at the heart of connection is communication because communication is a skill. And we're so lucky that it is because communication is a skill we can be intentional about building our skill so that we're more intentional about creating connections so that we generate intentionally the chemistry that we know benefits us for high performance. Most folks, if you know, you ask a coach, how much time do you spend on offense? How much time do you spend on defense? How much time do you spend on your communication skills? You usually get a, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, And yet it's something we do every day. And, and yet folks are typically don't spend a lot of time on it unless they need to, right? So if they're preparing to have an important conversation or they want to make sure that this email they're about to send is really well-worded, those are the times that we tend to focus in. And the reality is if anybody spent even five minutes a day working to improve some area of communication, everything else gets a little bit easier in our lives. Uh, that was okay. a long baseball card now that I realize. Uh, <laughs> hey, here's the deal, though. If that, that if that doesn't tee it up for, for what the rest of this conversation is going to be about, you know that Betsy's a real thing. Now, Betsy, let's get right to it, okay? So if everyone knows how important communication is, and at least in my experience, I would say the majority of problems or solutions, for that matter, that I've encountered, and surely in this gig, are the result of communication in some way, shape, or form. If it's that important, why are we so bad at it? It's like... Um, when you talk about, you know, a fish being in a fishbowl, when you're surrounded by water, you don't know that there's something else. And so we communicate during so much of our day, roughly 86% of our day, we spend in some form of communication. And yet, as I mentioned before, we tend to only be intentional about it when we have something important to say, or we really want to make sure that our message is received as intended. So part of the problem, Don, is that we're so immersed in communication. It's something that since we learned to talk, and I have a 12-month-old daughter, so I know that even before we learn to talk, we're communicating. And because we do it all the time and so frequently, it fades into the background. There's other things for us to focus on. Whereas if we were to bring a little intention and shine that light back on the source, which is communication, we would find ourselves in much better positions to do the things that we want to do with the people that we hope to connect with. Man, that's good. I couldn't write fast enough there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk more slowly. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. No, there's just a lot there. It's it's great. I love I love being intentional about it and how we yeah. just kind of don't pay attention to it. I know I'm guilty of that. That, that makes it really real uh, there. So, hey, Betsy, we read a quote um, that from you that centered on how happy people work harder. Uh, yeah. I read the quote. It was from a book excerpt, uh, and it was on the Twitter page of the Army women's basketball coach back in October. Mm-hmm. And but but our question is, how do leaders set standards, hold their people to those standards, whether it be coaches, players, or parents, and keep them happy? Where we get the best out of people? Uh, for right. me, I know there's always a conflict in my mind with upholding these high standards, which means sometimes having hard to direct, difficult conversations, uh, but 
keeping those people happy at the same time. Are there key strategies to the for the leader to strictly adhere to high standards, but keep their people happy at the same time? Right. I mean, great question. And I think an important place to start with that is understanding that these these situations, these contexts, people being happy while also holding a program or individuals to high standards or expectations, they don't exist separately. Not ideally anyways. So oftentimes we think, well, I want to hold them accountable, but I don't want to make them sad or mad or angry. So I'm not going to go as far as I would want to for the program because I'm prioritizing the individual. Just breaking that dichotomy, that um, belief that these exist separately is a starting point for connection and really for a greater experience for all. When I think about leaders and I think about your question of, you know, how do we make people happy? And this is something I get from coaches often. How do I make them do this? How do I make them do this? And I usually say, well, you can't make them do anything. I think as a coach, as an educator, our role specifically, and it's the same with parenting, it's the same with any leadership position, is to invite others into a supported way of being that we know is beneficial for them individually or for the group collectively. You can't make anybody do anything. One thing that I found during my coaching career, and I was fortunate to spend seven of the 10 years I was coaching women's basketball working as the assistant with Heidi Vanderveer. And I say with intentionally, Heidi was very much a work with, not for individual. And the thing that I love most about coaching with Heidi was that every season, regardless of what division we were in, and we, let's see, we won five championships in seven years at two different divisions. And our recipe for success was every year, our only focus was making sure that each student athlete in our program felt seen, valued, and appreciated regardless of skill level. Now, we had some really talented individuals. We also had some individuals that were like, gosh, is there another sport that you would be interested in? You know, um, And yet, that did not make that individual less valuable. When I talk to student athletes and I ask them questions like, you know, tell me about the favorite coach you've ever played for, you know, or who was your favorite coach and why? What comes up frequently, especially from Generation Z, is... You know, this was my favorite coach because I knew that they cared about me regardless of how I performed. Hmm. So bringing it back to your question of how do we make people happy? We make people happy by supporting them, by being intentional about providing equal amounts of challenge and support, by providing an intentional structure where growth and development can happen, and by doing the work ourselves to be the kind of person that is worth investing in from their part. When you have this mutual investment in a shared pursuit and there is this level of trust, this level of support within a team, those people, even if they're not winning, even when they fail, because they feel loved, they feel supported, they feel seen, those tend to be happy individuals. Now, happy individuals tend to want to give you their best. So you can't make anybody happy but you can be intentional about your own development, about the systems and structures that you create, about the way that you invest in others so that you create an environment in which happiness is a possible choice for that individual. And trust me, I've met people who choose to be unhappy all the time. So recognizing we can't change people, but within what we can control, how do we create the conditions for happiness so that individuals in our program want to give us their best effort? Those are the most successful teams. That is so good. <laughs> Just again, preface, she knows what she's talking about. This is, this is fantastic. Now, 
Betsy, I saw that a question you typically ask coaches is how much time do you spend training mental skills? Uh, oh, yeah, came up recently. Yeah, yeah. Just recently, I saw that. We we have discussed on here before this concept of taking away time to add value. And when I right. mean when I mean that, you know, taking away X's and O's time, you kind of alluded to that already. Yep. This idea of taking away the typical quote unquote practice time to focus on an aspect of the game that really may seem arbitrary to some coaches like connection or maybe even communication. Why should coaches and leaders get away from the day-to-day to focus on those mental skills? Because without the mental skills, the results that you want are less likely to materialize. And I think that's where coaches get in their own way is not having the foresight to see, okay, if I want X, but I'm going to skip over these pieces, it, it's less likely, or it's going to make the journey harder. Right. And I think in that tweet that, that you're referencing the conversation that I'd had with coaches and things that come up all the time is I hear coaches say, you know, they need to calm down they just need to slow down and take a breath. It's like, they really need to focus. They need to be more flexible. And so I'll always ask, yeah, I agree. It sounds like that would be beneficial for your team. So tell me how much time you're spending training the mental game. And I get a variety of answers from what to, well, I mean, we don't, you know, it's like we're asking for, or at worst expecting our student athletes to have skills that we're also not intentional about providing and developing. I don't think that's fair. And so the other piece of that is, and there was a a conversation I had with a coach, what I had recommended to this individual was, you know, your team's gone through a lot of adversity recently. I think it might be great to check in with them intentionally and just ask how's it, how they're doing, you know, validate the fact that it's been a rocky road these past few weeks. Things have been pretty challenging. You appreciate the way that they've weathered them and then ask genuinely what's come up for you all. Like, what's it been like to be you? And the question I got back from this coach was, okay, should I schedule this as an additional meeting or do this during practice time? And my question back was, what would it say to your student athletes if you took practice time to have this meeting? Instead of being an additional pull on their schedule, if you used your time to talk about what they're experiencing, what message would that send to your student athletes? And that coach ultimately decided to have that meeting during practice time because what it said without it being stated was, this is so important that I'm willing to sacrifice time we could spend on the X's and O's to check in with you as people. I tell you, one thing you just said, that you know, what's it been like to be you? I, I yeah. think there, there's so much power in that sentence that, that we can, whether you're talking to another coach, whether you're talking to another AD, whether you're talking to an athlete, that's a universal statement that is so powerful that I think can really dig to the heart of whether it be motivation, whether it be a problem, whether it be a solution. Uh, I think that that's, that is, that is absolute gold. Thank you for that. Yeah. And, and thank you for acknowledging the fact that that perspective is so important. It's really easy without blame or fault or judgment for people to live life in their own lane. We take in everything through an accumulation of our own experiences. And that's how we filter messages coming in through the world. And to, proactively get outside of that and not just put yourself in someone else's shoes, but really try to understand what is it like to be them? Hmm. And what is this experience, this shared space that we're in like for someone with their background, their experience, things that we often don't know about and yet directly influence how they experience that shared space that we create. And that's really, really good. I, I, Betsy. So 
talking about coaching us a little bit, we have a parent uh, who's really high level leader. He's actually in the athletic space as well. He, he, we were talking about different conversations, difficult conversations, positive conversations. And he said, they lump all that under responsible conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I like that because as leaders, we have the responsibility to have difficult conversations as well as the responsibility to have positive conversations when when they are warranted. Right. And and which is probably more times than not. But in a recent newsletter I saw published, you focused on practicing hard conversations. Yeah. So rather than talk about hard conversations and positive conversations, can you give us a quick lesson on how to practice conversations? Yeah. Stop avoiding them. (laughs) I mean, that's the first place, you know, it's like, and again, you think about the coaches that really want their athletes to be so mentally tough and skilled and yet don't take time to actively train those skills. Same thing here. We want the ability ideally to be able to have responsible conversations in a way that goes well. And yet how often are we practicing these for most folks? The answer is not unless I have to. And if we look at And I found this to be true among men, among women, among people of all ages and backgrounds in our country, specifically, most people have a negative view of confrontation. And typically that's because that individual has never been taught skills for how to engage in those types of conversations in a way that builds trust and relationship instead of deteriorating those things or They've had one, if not several, really bad experiences of when they've tried to operate well in those spaces, so much so that they seek to avoid them at any cost. So most people avoid the conversations that if we were able to have them, especially if we were able to have them skillfully, are the strongest thing for building trust and relationship between people. So I love that rephrase of responsible conversations. One of the things that I do in a workshop that I have called Confrontation for Connection is I ask folks to write down, let's say I've got a team of maybe 18 and I'll say, I want you to take 30 seconds and in your notes, I want you to write down all the words that come to mind when you hear the word confrontation and they write that down. I say, okay, pause, same exercise. I want you to write all the words that come to mind when you hear the word conflict and they do the same thing. And then we go around the room and everyone shares. And as they share, I write all the words that they come up with on a large screen. Once we finish that, I say, okay, now I want you to tell me, looking at these words, which of these are innately positive? So what words could you look at? And in most contexts, people would say, yeah, that's a positive word. Typically, if we've got 90 words up there, only about eight are positive. And this exercise demonstrates the fact that for most people, we have a negative perception about what conflict means and what confrontation is. Now, if we go into a conversation already thinking this is going to go poorly, it's probably not going to go well. So the first thing that we need to do is change how we look at these conversations. One of the ways that we can do that is by rephrasing the way that we talk about them. So the fact that you mentioned responsible conversations, like, yes, I, as the leader or one of the leaders or a position of leadership, am responsible for having conversations that may be difficult, that may be uncomfortable, but that are important to have because of the individual or the goals that we have for the program or organization. So just thinking about these conversations differently and then being intentional about becoming more skillful and then finding opportunities as uncomfortable as it may be to begin practicing these skills so that we can then navigate these conversations in a way that not only is better for us, 
but gosh, give somebody else a better experience of what conflict or confrontation can look like. And now maybe they're inspired to have these conversations more often. Like these are things that we can do to help ourselves. And yet mostly we avoid them because we've had a bad experience and they've been uncomfortable in the past. Yeah. So I I catch myself a lot of times having these confrontations in my head, right? I, Mm. I, I don't necessarily practice them with other people and I have different, and I spend days doing that, right? Just thinking about things I want to share with either a coach or an employee or someone um, that I think needs to be improved upon. And it's that difficult conversation in my head till I, and and it takes a while to get it out. Right. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's productive or not. I think sometimes it helps me. Sometimes I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about things that I should be spending other time on. I don't know. Well, and it really depends on, you know, is it useful is the question that I often ask, like is processing in that way for you, something that you found over time is useful when you're trying to prepare for difficult conversations. If it is great, if you have curious questions and it sounds like maybe there's some that exist right now, you know, I don't know if, if that's the best use of my time, or maybe I'm spending too much time thinking about things that may not even happen. Right. Because the right. challenge when we play out a conversation in our heads, and this is very natural for folks to do is we are responding as the other person or as we think they might respond when they might give us a completely different response. Right. And then what? And then we think, oh, well, I have to plan for a couple of different responses. And it's like, okay, but the reality is they're probably only going to give you one. So it's just, a, it can be an inefficient use of time. However, if it makes you feel prepared and if it allows you to step into that space, feeling like, okay, I've already explored a few options and I now feel more open, more calm, more relaxed, than I would if I hadn't done that exercise in my head. For me, I would say that's useful because it impacts the way that you show up to have that conversation. Here's what's interesting. And I do this sometimes too, especially if I'm working with an athletic department or team, I'll put a slide up that says, um, you know, has a picture of a, a phone and it says your AD texts you on a Tuesday night at 8.45 PM. And all it says, please see me first thing when you get into the office. And then I'll ask the audience, like, tell me what happened. Why is your AD want to see you? Same thing. Most of the responses are negative. Now, here's the trick is that in the gap between unknown and known, there's space for possibility. And yet, because we're biological beings who are primed to to protect ourselves, we fill in that gap of unknown with negatives so that we feel like, okay, I prepared for the worst. Well, here's the thing. It's 8.45 p.m. You respond to your AD, you don't get anything back, not even the three dots where they're like thinking about responding and then they don't, you just get nothing. And now you go into the office at 8 a.m. So it's been almost 12 hours as you ruminate on all the reasons that are bad for why your AD needs to see you, you now physically, energetically show up in a very different way for that meeting at 8 a.m. If you spent that entire night thinking, gosh, I'm getting a raise. This is fantastic. Like my hard work's finally paid off. You're going to show up very differently than if you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. So it matters in the space between in unknown, just recognizing that while we tend to go negative, it's just as possible and likely that there could be a positive reason or outcome or situation or circumstance. So recognizing that we are in control of our perceptions and not letting our perceptions become reality before we have the information that would make it so. So even just holding space for the possibility that, okay, I'm thinking this conversation might go this way, and yet it's possible that there might be something else. One of the questions I try to ask early in a conversation, especially a more challenging one, is 
help me understand. And then I'll insert whatever the topic of the conversation is, or what is it I haven't asked that you feel is important for me to know or understand. That's one of my favorites because it very clearly says, look, I've got my perspective on this issue and I want to be really intentional about creating space for other truths to exist. And you've heard, you know, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And what I've come to realize in the work that I do is quite frequently people are telling me their truth. And yet that truth may differ slightly from the truth. And when I say the truth, I mean like the collective truth. They're being very clear and very honest and upfront about what's true for them. But it's that for them piece that has the asterisk. We talk about communication. Okay, this is what the student athlete experienced for them based on what the coach said. And I talk with the coach and the coach tells me about what they said and what was true for them. And what I find out is we have two people that are experiencing a miscommunication while each is also living their own truth about that experience. And that's where the work is to be done. I'll tell you, just on the backside of that same, that same text interaction as the person sending it. Okay. I'll give you, you know, some perspective there. Mm-hmm. One night as a local school AD, I sent a text, Hey, could you swing by my office in the morning? I hit send and then I read bedtime stories and I bathed my kids and I went to bed and then I like, I had a great night, you know? And then right. when I went in, when I went in the next day, cause it was, it was something very insignificant. It was more of a reminder to me. It's like, I don't want to forget about talking to you about this thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then they come in and they're all like worked up or whatever. And I'm like, Hey man, morning. And, and they were completely, it, it was not exact. It wasn't even close to what they thought it was going to be. It was more of a reminder for me. And I apologize. I was like, man, I'm sorry. Like I, that, that's, that is my bad because I just needed a reminder and it turned into a long night for you, you know? And yeah, so I, that's I, I a felt perfect example, Don. Yeah, yeah. That's a perfect example, but that's how easy it is to miscommunicate. And often the challenge is something happens and miscommunication occurs and we never check it out with people. You know, and I love Brene Brown's work. I have so much respect for anyone that voluntarily researches shame and vulnerability. And she talks about using that phrase with her team. The story I'm telling myself is, and because we do, we make up these narratives in our head about a situation and what's happening. And often we do it with incomplete information. And it's like, we're not helping ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. even a quick text back of, um, sure. I'll see you first thing. Is there anything I need to prepare or no? Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's like, no, I just didn't want to forget to meet with you. Like sometimes we have the ability to clarify in the moment. And when we don't, then we sit with it. And in that time we're sitting with it, we're making up all these narratives about what's true, which to your point just before is completely different than what you intended. Right. And this is what's endlessly fascinating about people. Now, now let's expand on that just a little bit. Cause I, I've heard you talk about something that I think is fascinating. I want you to elaborate on it. I was trying to explain it to Josh and I failed miserably. So, okay. and it's this concept of listening with our bodies. Yeah. Okay. So what is it? And how can we use it to be better communicators? I think this is great. Yeah. So I um, read a book called Leadership Embodiment within the past year. And the whole premise is the way that we sit and stand influences the way that we think and speak. And even right now, we're, we're on a Zoom call, can't see anybody's hands. And yet in a conversation, if you turn your hands up, you'll notice an energetic shift almost immediately that this is a much more open response or gesture or body positioning than close. So even if I've got my hands, you know, on the tops of my legs, if I sit with them open, I'm in a much more receptive position to listen than if I had them hands down. Same thing, you know, folded across our body versus simply not being across our body. In the book, they talk about listening with your back body. 
So almost like letting the words or sounds come through you to the point that if your ears were behind you, instead of on the sides of your head, what would it be like to listen in that way? Um, Oftentimes with presentations, especially virtual ones, have a standing desk. So I'll stand because I know that energetically I come across differently when I stand, even if it's not in front of a live audience than when I sit. So this, this is what we mean by, um, you know, how we can listen with our body, how we can be intentional with the things that we do positionally. This comes up oftentimes in difficult conversations too. Let's say coach is having a student athlete conversation, maybe about playing time. Student athlete said, Hey coach, can I talk to you about my playing time? So coach is like, okay, you know, we're doing, we're doing this again. And student athlete comes into their office, coach is seated behind their desk. Student athlete sits in a chair that's just off the corner of the desk. This is very typical. Here's the challenge, especially when we talk about being intentional of creating connection with other people. The coach's office is a good place to have a meeting because it's a private space. The challenge is it's absolutely the coach's space. So even if you're a coach that has an open door policy, you've got candy or snacks on your desk, student athletes come in and out. You occupy that space more often than student athletes. If we flip it and say, okay, well, what's a student athlete space? A space they occupy more frequently than we do as coaches, but we as coaches also visit might be the locker room, for example. So they're in there more often. We also go into that space, but they spend more time there. So if we look at those two extremes, a more neutral space would be somewhere that you practice or play. When we have that conversation in our office, we've already slanted the conversation from a power dynamic perspective to the coach having power. Additionally, there's a physical barrier between the coach and the student athlete doesn't matter who the person is when they come into that office it benefits coaches especially to have options for seating that remove physical barriers now given the office size or resources maybe that's not always possible two different things you can do one take the meeting to a completely neutral space let's say your practice facility competition facility isn't conducive for having a meeting giving the nature of the meeting try to find a neutral space maybe it's an open conference room within the athletic department maybe it's a space outside physically adding light or space. So if we're indoors, we're talking high ceilings, find a place that has windows. If the weather doesn't permit going outside so that you add some natural light to the space, even thinking about the lighting, the smells in the room, like this is stuff that we don't think about often. If you're in Vegas, they're very intentional about this. Think about hotels. When you walk in the lobby, there's a certain ambiance that's created restaurants, same thing. The way that you feel when you walk into that space on a subconscious level influences what happens in that space. So we can bring that same intention going off of, you know, body positioning to our conversations. Can we have it in a neutral space? If I've got to sit at a table, instead of sitting on opposite sides, can I share a corner so that I've minimized the physical barriers between myself and the other person? There's so many different things that we can take into consideration when being intentional about creating the space for conversation to happen. Man. Uh, I like to, and I'm sitting at my desk looking across at the at the chair here thinking how many times do people walk in here, but just the fact that they walk in here means, hey, they're on my turf, which is yeah. uh, a deep concept to really think about and consider. So, all right, Betsy, so uh, we want to get into what you do as a coach right now, if you don't mind, if you got a few more minutes. Yeah. Uh, we, we have a series of kind of simple questions uh, to kind of get a glimpse of what you would teach in these scenarios. And uh, we, we don't necessarily want you to uh, do a whole seminar right now. We understand, okay. uh, you know, uh, that we, you might 
start the meter running on us and uh, charge us for that conversation. But no, uh, you know, we know, we know you do that for a living, as you said, a self-made job. That's pretty neat. Uh, but uh, if you could maybe just answer, we got like four questions, simple questions to entice folks in what you do, but also maybe there's somebody out here, maybe they're in Colorado or, or somewhere across the country that they would like to reach out to you and get you on board uh, on their team uh, and help them get some counsel from you. But uh, so just a, just a few questions here. I think Don's going to take the first. So first of all, what is the key for athletic directors when communicating with their coaches? When you look at that da- that dynamic between an athletic director and a coach, what is maybe uh, the first key that comes to your mind when you think about th- those two groups communicating with one another? Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is partnership. So the more an athletic director, and I I work with a lot of athletic directors, those that I feel are most successful are the people that have been so intentional about getting to know their coaches. So doing the work upfront to not just set meetings, right? Because that's part of your job as an AD is I'm going to meet with my coaches on a certain basis, but outside of those meetings to go to their competitions, to go to their practices, to really do whatever they need to do to get to know the person behind the position. And that's really the difference I see between athletic directors who are successful and athletic directors who find themselves kind of fighting fires all the time. The adversity is going to come. It's not a matter of if it's when and how often. So those athletic directors that have partnered with their coaches to the point that the coach feels very supported, even when things are challenging, I'll say, especially when things are challenging, that's really the key for communication is taking the time to get to know your coaches as people so that when you get that call from a parent or a student athlete, and you know, sometimes those are escalated very quickly, that you as the AD know, you know what, that that sounds out of alignment with who I know this individual to be. I'm not saying it's not possible, but we've got kind of a self-check in place because we've done the work to know the person behind the position. When we don't do that, it's very easy to escalate things that instead of being an investigation could be a conversation. So coming from that place of mutual understanding, who is this person that is leading this team and what are they about? And, you know, having done the work frequently enough to be able to say, yeah, like that makes sense or no, this doesn't fit. And let's do some more exploring together. Yeah, that's great. How about uh, the key for coaches and adults to communicate with today's student athletes? Is it different at the high school level versus the college level and beyond? It's, I think there's always going to be differences based off of competitive level, um, just in terms of, you know, depending on the goals for the program, the communication is likely going to be different. The standards are going to be different. The structure for how we practice and train is going to be different. What in the work that I do now, what I find as a common barrier for coaches is the challenges of coaching Generation Z. So today's student athlete and at all levels, I hear coaches say, ah, kids these days. And what they say after that isn't usually very supportive or positive. There's very real reasons why today's student athlete is different than any student athlete we've ever coached before. And it largely has to do with the way that they've been raised with technology. Now I can say, you know, the data says that Gen Z born during or after 96 have never known life without the internet. And people say, okay, well, the internet was kind of a big deal. Like I can get why that's important. And yet it's understanding the nuances of what that life looks like separate from any previous generation and the way that that's impacted the expectations, spoken or unspoken, of today's student athlete, the first barrier that we need to remove as coaches or parents with today's student athlete is comparing who they are as student athletes with who we were. And 
oftentimes this is done and our coaches say, oh, kids these days, when I was a student athlete, it's like, okay, so when you were a student athlete is likely 15, 25, 35, 45 years ago, the world was literally a different place. And so that comparison meant to make um, an example or give a perspective it's not relevant for today's student athlete. And it's an unfair comparison. And what it really does is create an additional barrier between ourselves and the student athlete, those that we seek to connect with and coach. So if we can remove that barrier and stop comparing our experience with their experience, start to intentionally lean into, and I do an entire session on relating to today's student athlete, effectively coaching Gen Z. What are the challenges inherent in coaching this generation? How can we better understand who today's student athlete is so that we can more proactively connect with and coach them. So the, I mean, that's the challenge is really stepping away from judgment and comparison and moving into curiosity and understanding. And I always tell coaches, look, I'm not here to change you. I'm here to give you options so that if you choose to change at any point, you have the ability to do so because coaches coaching in their authenticity is hugely important to not only their individual self-satisfaction, but the success of their program. And today's student athletes are really good at spotting if you're out of your integrity. So how do you help coaches do that while also being more aware of and responsive to the differences in the young people that we're coaching today? Yeah, I think that's great. I know folks in my generation and, uh, you know, my parents' age and such, they always say two phrases that you mentioned, kids these days and followed by they are always on their phones, right? Right, right. But you also said they don't know any different. We've got to accept that, right? They are always on their phone or their device or whatever it is because they have never known a time when they weren't these devices like the Gen X and, and beyond, you know, uh, older generation. So I think yeah. that's us just making excuses for reality. Reality is, is, is real, right? So that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about school leaders communicating with their community? Okay. And so mm. whether it be ADs, coaches, uh, you know, uh, administrators talking with specifically parents. Yeah. I think one of the challenges um, is that, Depending on the parent, and I don't want to lump all parents into certain categories, but you hear tell about helicopter parents and lawnmower parents. And I love that quote in education of our role as educators is to prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And yet a lot of the challenges I see for administrators and coaches today is they're coaching individuals for whom their caretakers or parents have prepared the path or the, yeah, the path for the child. So they've just, you know, blown these barriers out of the way to set quote unquote, their child up for success when unintentionally what they've done is limit their, their child's ability to advocate for themselves or to be responsive to challenges and adversity to problem solve in a way that they're going to need to for life. When we talk about leaders connecting with their community one of the, the things I come back to is make it easy for them to know you. And this doesn't mean oversharing. This doesn't mean, you know, extreme vulnerability. This means what is it that you want to share and make visible and easy to understand? Or what is it you want to clearly communicate about who you are, about your intentions, about um, your values, the things that are important to you? And then how do you co-create this space of this board experience that you're giving to the student athlete? There's one coach I know who used to bring in the parents of their current roster into the locker room about two hours before game time. So the student athletes were going to come in an hour before 
he invited the parents in two hours before and he gave them the scouting report. So he took them through exactly what he was going to take the pair or the student athletes through. Now you've got parents in the stands that are completely aware and invested in what's going on in the game. And it was just such a high level of buy-in for those parents specifically because there was the transparency. You know, I see coaches who have beginning of year meetings with their parents where they tell them, these are our expectations as coaches of you as parents. Very different experience from having that same meeting and inviting your parents to support the program. And here's a variety of ways that you can do it. So it's like, are we telling them or are we asking them? Are we making a command or are we making a request? And what does that look like? And what's the difference in service of creating relationships? It's really neat. And it connects to a former guest of ours, Daryl Nance. He was a uh, girls basketball coach in South Carolina. And now he's director of athletics for Greenville County Schools. But when he was a basketball coach, he talked about we talked about parents and playing time and stuff. And he had a parent's practice. Uh, He invited Mm. them to come to practice and he got them involved. He explained what a certain play looked like and all the responsibilities that their kid was supposed to know and, and all that. But he got the kids involved. So that and the parents getting the scouting report, as you just mentioned, all those are really, really neat out of the box strategies, but uh, it helps the community easily get to know who you are and what you do as a coach, as an, you know, I think about this, I've done it for 10 years, 10 years ago, I really didn't care or want those people in the community parents to know me. I just wanted to do my job. Right. And I can look back 10 years now and say, it's pretty neat. The people who appreciate you and who make this job, what it is, are the ones who know you and can appreciate you. So that's a great yeah. thing. Make, make it easy for your community to get to know you, which means you got to be present. You got to be there uh, for them to see you and see what's important to you and such as that. So, yeah, well, even the example you brought up earlier about, you know, in the absence of known information, we usually fill it with misinformation or with negativity or fear. So it's like, okay, if I don't, as an athletic director, have a real interest in getting to know my parents or them knowing me, what are the parents going to fill in that gap with? And it's a natural occurrence. So we can be proactive about that and counteract that negativity by simply giving them information. That's good. Uh, So, so one more question on its line, what are the common obstacles that leaders tend to trip up on when trying to improve their communication skills? Mm, Great question. I think as leaders specifically, one area that I see people trip up on or get in their own way is when they feel a responsibility to know, you know, I, as the leader need to have great communication. And so I'm going to operate from this standpoint. I think the most successful leaders that have observed in their pursuit to become better communicators are perpetual students. They're also really good at saying, I don't know. And even better at saying my bad and taking ownership for the ways in which they haven't shown up the way that they would ideally like to in certain conversations. I was doing one-on-one informational interviews with a team this past week. And one of the student athletes at the end of our conversation, she said, so do you like communicate perfectly all the time? And I was like, no. And I said, I don't mean to laugh. I appreciate your question. And gosh, no, you know, I'm Betsy. And that's why in part, I'm really intentional about calling myself a communication specialist and not an expert. I, Betsy, do not know everything there is to know about communication. That said, I'm highly committed and invested in learning everything that I can about ways to communicate more effectively in a more connected way with people. And oftentimes I learn the most from the conversations in which I haven't been my best self. Or I went in a certain direction or I said something that felt right at the time, but man, did I miss the mark. 
And I will be the first to own with that individual the times that that happened. And those often painfully so are the moments when I learn the most. And in learning, I then have the opportunity to not tell people don't do what I did, but here's what I learned. And if it's of value to you, I feel it's important to share. Well, there's a couple of folks on this call right here. And I think uh, pretty much anybody listening would disagree with you that you are a communication <laughs> expert uh, well, based you. on what they've heard today. So, yeah, I, I would put expert beside your name. Uh, we'll let you call yourself what you want, but uh, we're going to say communication expert after this conversation today. Thanks for sharing so much uh, real applicable uh strategies with us and helping us be better leaders by communicating better. And uh, we look forward to uh, just uh, listening to this again and implementing uh, the, the lessons you taught us today. So thanks for that, Betsy. We always finish our show with uh, a segment where we get to know our guests a little bit better. We call it the two okay. minute drill. So yeah. uh, Don's going to start us off with a, with a two minute drill on Betsy Butter. Okay, Betsy, we're going to hit you with some rapid-fire questions. We want you to tell us the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Great, okay. What was the first job you ever had, ever? Ooh, ever? It was mowing grass. Uh, I mowed for the neighbor's grass, yep. Yep, nice, can relate. All right, your choice, basketball coaching or coaching golf? Oh, I'd say for the athletes, it better be basketball because, gosh, I'm not great as a golf coach. I love <laughs> to play, though. So if it was a playing question, golf, coaching, definitely stick with basketball. Great answer. All right. Now we uh, observe that you're a quote person. So do you have a favorite quote? I have too many favorite quotes. That's the <laughs> challenge of this question. Um, gosh, the one that's resonated a lot recently is I believe it's Maya Angelou. When um, people tell you who they are, believe them. And I think as a coach, especially as a, as a positive person, I've often wanted to see the best in individuals. And that's part of what we're responsible to do is to develop potential, right? And I've had to learn uh, over time really to let people be as they are, to meet them where they are, not where I would have them be. And that when they repeatedly show you who they are, believe them, you know, and, and if that doesn't match up with the goals of the organization or where you're trying to go, accept that. That's good. All right, next one. Besides yourself, who is the best communicator you know? Oh, gosh, my brother, my twin brother. Um, and we've had wildly different paths. He's uh, part of LinkedIn's global management team and is an integral part of their organization. And I love talking with Chris because we are so different, even though we're twins, that I always get a fresh perspective. And I appreciate how articulate he is, how thoughtful he is in his responses, and also the way that he asks questions. I think that's something that's very important to both of us is, you know, rather than telling, can we ask and can we gain insight or add value to the conversation, not from what we say, but from the quality of our questions. Hmm. Who do you text the most? Who do I text the most? My wife, I think, um, okay. probably. And, yeah, and I'd say I'd say my mom. Uh, after that, my parents have been such huge supporters, and gosh, they've watched you know from working in Division Three basketball and you know scraping different jobs together and hustling. And when I was younger, you know, saying, "Hey, mom, dad, like I don't think I'm going to make rent this month. Can I borrow some from you, and I'll pay it back as soon as I do?" So they've supported this wild journey, and and because of that, in part, I feel so grateful to be able to share successes with them. And my mom's simply on her phone a little more than dad. So I text mom whenever there's exciting things to share. Of Like, you know, I, I worked with a student athlete and she just, you know, walk off home run to end the game. And I'm so excited for it. Like that kind of stuff. Just to share it with family is a true privilege. Cool. Would your 12-year-old self think you are cool now? 
Now? Oh yeah, definitely now. Yeah, then? No, <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, I think I was cool by proxy of being a really gifted athlete. Um, but man, I, I mean, just looking at pictures and thinking about experiences, like I know I was as, as cool as I could be at that time. And I think I, I, I see nerdy as cool. Um, so depending on your definition of cool, maybe my 12 year old self was, but I think 12 year old Betsy would think that 38 year old Betsy is pretty cool. <laughs> Awesome. Now, in looking at your social media, you highlight a lot of really great coaches. Uh, I've noticed, you know, as we kind of did, did our homework here for today, who is your favorite coach right now? My favorite coach right now? Uh, I mean, I'm totally biased. My favorite coach is still Heidi Vanderveer. Um, she's family to me. Heidi is Tara Vanderveer at Stanford's youngest sister. There's five Vanderveer children. Heidi and Tara are the ones that coach collegiately. But I... I say Heidi's my favorite right now because having worked with her for so long, I know the kind of experience that she's giving so intentionally to student athletes. I know how much she values, you know, most coaches say, well, I, it's not a four-year decision, it's a 40-year decision and we're preparing you for life. And I just, there's so many ways we could spend an entire podcast talking about all the examples I have in experience of how Heidi has given of herself to make that experience so wonderful for other people. And it is about basketball. It's also never been about basketball. And so for that reason, I have so much respect for the way that she navigates this landscape of coaching that's really people-centered and, and people-centric. And I just have so much respect and love for that. Yeah. What was your favorite subject in school? Oh, my favorite subject in school. Oh, eventually it was psychology. I think I didn't really have psych classes until college. Um, maybe one or two in high school, but I just love people. And that was the joke when I was coaching is like, I like basketball, but I love people. And it was a, a way that I felt, especially at the time, was a meaningful way to be with people in service of their growth and development. I always had a little bit of guilt about the fact that I was that basketball coach that did the work at the office and then went home and I didn't spend hours watching film or watching the NBA or WNBA. Like I kind of turned it on and off. And, and I think I always had a little bit of guilt around, well, gosh, if I want to be a really great coach, I should spend more time on the craft and the X's and O's. What I learned reflectively is that I was a great coach because of how much I cared about the people and that the X's and O's, you know, other people were experts in. And for me, it was really focusing on how do I take care of the people that are part of our program so that we can give ourselves the opportunity for success. Now, this is a question that we've asked a lot of our guests this season, and it's, it's quickly becoming one of my favorites because of the answers that we get. So, if Josh and I were coming out to Colorado, okay, to visit you, what is what are we having for dinner? What is the go-to dish? Now we had this we had this conversation prior to. I know there is no sweet tea in Colorado, but I'm good with there's that. not. Yeah, I would not do you the disservice of trying to make some when I know it's better made <laughs> and, and better drank in certain geographic locations. Um, ooh. Well, if you were coming to visit, I would have already asked you, you know, what do you like and what can I make you? Um, but if you didn't have that information, a really fun one recently has been make your own pizzas. Um, I love Trader Joe's. I don't know if you all have Trader Joe's where you're located, but um, getting the, the non bread and then the pizza sauce and then the cheese and then because you can pick your own toppings and we've got one of those little toaster ovens separate from the big oven perfect size for a personal pizza uh not too big not too small you can change it up and spice it up any way you like so yeah the adventures of eight minutes and your pizza's ready yeah i like that a lot i'm in i like some pizza that's good we have right. to go to a local brewery though there's a ton of them and so <laughs> yeah we do homemade pizza but i'd probably take you out for beers <laughs> what was your first car 
Oh, my first car was an 89 Mitsubishi Montero. Uh, yep, every, named, every, named Buttercup. Everybody's <laughs> face when we ask that question, it just kind of lights up. It takes you back to that that first car. Um, whose advice do you value the most? I would say my brother. Um, and there's so many people that I really respect. You, know, you talk about having that kind of board of directors for your life. And I'm privileged to have some, some really wonderful human beings um, in my inner circle. And I think in part because one of the twin connection I mean, there's just something about, you know, sharing a womb. I call my roommate, um, you know, sharing that space with someone, but then having lived such very different lives, knowing that we come at things from a totally different perspective. He's someone that I've watched do the work over the years to put himself in different positions to then be of greater service to other people. And so I, I have so much respect for his perspective and also the words that he says. That's good. What's something you think everyone should try at least once? Oh, the thing that you're not sure if you should. <laughs> I mean, I, I and I have an issue with that word should and folks that I work with know like for me, should is a stuck place. It's like if you should do something, but you've yet to take action on it. There's probably one, if not several reasons why that's true. And there's so many things we can say in place of should, you know, I, I could, I want to, I'm thinking about, I intend to, but the thing that everyone should try is something that they don't think they're going to like because we get really fixated on like, yeah, I don't think I'll like that. And it's like, well, have you tried it? You know, and if you try it and don't like it, by all means, own that for the rest of your life. But if there's something you haven't tried that you don't think you'll like, even just for the sake of saying, yeah, no, I was right about that. I can trust my gut. Give it a try. All right. So focusing on a word uh, like should, uh, what mm. single word is your favorite? Oh, you're asking really difficult questions. Um <laughs> Ah, my favorite. I mean, my favorite has to be love, and Perfect. my four values are love, integrity, curiosity, and joy. And I center the way that I work, the person I am, most of my life decisions around those four. But I truly believe, it, and it's in part because of my parents. Um, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and we did have a, a lot of love. And my siblings and I never were aware of the fact that mom and dad were just scraping by because we were so well loved. And I really believe that all things are possible through love, and love will see you through all possible things. So, um, yeah, for me, that that's got to be the one. Yeah, great word. All right, so let's finish with this, our trademark question today. Betsy Butterick, you've been hanging with the ADs, but if you could hang out with anyone, who would you hang out with and why? Oh, RGB. And that's just someone that I, you know, have so much respect for, obviously never met. And yet in learning more about the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, gosh, I'd love to have a conversation with her and more so just to listen to her talk. Um, and, and absorb some of the wisdom and knowledge and perspective and foresight and integrity that, that seems to be so much of her work and her life. That's someone that I would love to have the privilege of a conversation with. That's great. Now, Betsy, thank you for joining us today. As our listeners begin to digest what you have shared, uh, where can they find you, learn more about what you're doing uh, to help them communicate more effectively? Absolutely. You can go to www.betsybutterick.com. You can link to all of my social media through there. You can find me on Twitter at Betsy Butterick, on Instagram at Betsy underscore the coach's coach. You can also go to YouTube. And if you search Betsy Butterick, there's going to be a series of videos called ACTS. ACTS stands for Active Communication Technique. 
What I love about these videos is they're all roughly two minutes or less, and they're designed to give anybody, not just people in sports, but anybody, something actionable that they can do today to improve the way that we communicate and connect with others. There's, I think, 39 acts currently. Another one's going to be coming out shortly. So if you're looking to upskill in the area of communication, you don't have a lot of time. You think, you know what, Betsy, I know there's lots of ways I'm imperfect. I'm just looking to get a little bit better. Start with the ACT videos. I've had people use those individually. They also use them with their team. So if you're looking for some easy, quick hits for improving the quality of your communication, start with the ACT videos. And if I can be of service to you, your organization, your team, if you're looking to improve the quality of your communication in service of connection, I'd love to hear from you. I'm going to co-sign on the videos. They're fantastic. Uh, and and the, <laughs> the, so. the, the pace of them and the length of them, it's it's tailor-made for us. And so I appreciate that. It's always great to collaborate with leaders outside of the world of education. Uh, it helps broaden our perspective. Uh, and I know that our listeners are going to be better for it today. So thanks again. Yeah, Josh, John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spare time with you. Well, I don't know if I'm a better communicator right now, but I know who I can call and which episode to listen to if I want to improve my communication. First, I want to say thank you to Miss Betsy Butterick for give, for giving us time today, for sharing her expertise. Uh, I think we can agree that she is a communication expert with us on how to communicate. I also wanted just to share a few notes that I took that really relate to us as educators, not necessarily coaches and athletic directors, but as an overall educator, uh, where she said, prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. I mean, how great is that for all the kids that we touch? Prepare them for their path, not making one path for all the children. And then she talked about early on, chemistry is formed through communication, and communication is at the heart of connection. How do we connect with our student athletes, our students, our communities? How do we connect with everyone? And it has to be through communication. So why shouldn't we get better at it? Let's try to improve our communication. Let's be intentional. And then she talked about the different gaps and how gaps are filled. And we can use communication to fill gaps with all the different stakeholders that we have to communicate. Finally, make it easy for everyone in your community to get to know you. That's a part of your communication, how we make others feel when they're around us, how we allow them to get to know us. So thank you, Miss Bessie Butterick, for making us better communicators, at least providing us strategies and tips to be better communicators today. And now, as always, we'd like for you to go leave us a rating or review. Maybe you can talk about what you took from this episode. You can leave it right there on the platform you're listening to. You can put it in our social media, tag us there, leave us a uh, comment as what this episode or other episodes have meant to you. Maybe how we can get better. We'd love to hear your advice and love to hear from you as a listener. Thanks for listening. And until next time, thank you for spending your time hanging with the AD. Mm -hmm.